With the Chase Inc. Business Unlimited credit card, you get unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase. It's so simple, you don't even have to think about it. So think about opening your shop early. Earlier. Don't think about the 1.5% cash back. Think about automating some of your operations. Think about delivering across town, across country, across oceans. Think about every part of your business, except the one part that works without a thought. Your Inc. Business Unlimited card. Learn more at chase.com slash inc. Restrictions and limitations apply. Offers subject to change. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. He was a mentor, a close friend. I was there. And when he passed, I took it a little bit personal. For the next four to five years, I was on a head hunt. It wasn't good. It was more fueled by hate than reasoning. But, you know, that's war. Sometimes you lose your way and, you know, you go after them. So I did. I fought the war as hard as I could. I realized at a certain point, the war started catching up to me. You just don't care about anything else. Kids would get kidnapped and, and they don't show up with an IED strapped to them. So the crowd would run towards them and that's when the IED goes up. They kill you or you kill them. And I hate to sound like that, but that's war, right? I don't think it can get any more simple than that. People have a hard time coming back from the war because everything's just so simple in the battlefield. I personally fought 14 years of it on and off. I lost a lot of friends along the way. I had a lot of negative energy from the years with hate. It's not a good thing. If you've heard previous episodes of this show, we refer to veterans of recent wars. And if you were to ask just about anyone what countries those recent wars happened in, the answer you'd probably get is just Iraq or Afghanistan. And those are certainly the big ones, the newsmakers, the wars that have touched most people's lives today. But wars are happening all over the world, whether the general population knows about them or not. In places like Yemen, Laos, Chad. They don't declare it a war zone. They call it areas of conflicts, the hot spots. Those are countries where we've got soldiers who, although their footprint is small, they're affecting a global outcome. ODA, special forces, green berets, different words, same meaning. They are snake-eating badasses ready to deal death and free the oppressed. But they aren't just experts in direct action or combat. They're cultural specialists, intelligence analysts, trainers, and leaders. And Tulam is one of those people. You don't have aerial support. You don't have exfil plans that's 100% in place. So those are the missions that became super dangerous in my eyes. This is Battle Scars, and I'm Tom Tran. I served in the U.S. Army, deployed to Iraq, and took a sniper's bullet to the back of my head my fourth day in country. It's been over a decade since that gunfight, and I've told that story hundreds of times. There's still things about my life in combat that I haven't shared with anyone. And in this show, I talk to other veterans of our recent wars, and maybe put into words some of those things that we've never said about those experiences.
Well, thank you for coming on and thank you for doing this. Uh, I appreciate it. I was reading your dossier last night. I was kind of talking to my wife and she was asking me who I was talking to this week. And uh, I told her about you and we kind of read through a bunch of the interview stuff. And she looks at me and goes, so if you're Mario, he's Super Mario. (laughs) That's that's a pretty accurate description of (laughs) uh, the parallels of our life. You're five years older than me, but the entire time I was thinking about how creepily our lives literally paralleled. Both Vietnamese immigrants, both came to the United States as children, both from military families, both joined the army. Mm -hmm. I was so interested in even reading about when you came home, much like I did with music and comedy, you had to find something away from the warrior side of it to find your center again when you came back. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard after the war. I personally fought 14 years of it on and off. And when you're not at war, you're training for war or you're deployed in conflict areas. Right. And those are the most dangerous missions because the war is cut and dry. You have your aerial, you have your pred feeds, you have all the support mechanisms in place to get things in country to be that much more lethal. But when they throw us in Nigeria or put us in, you know, Philippines and Zamboanga somewhere, I mean, you don't have those war assets that usually do in declared war zones. Okay, so two is Super Mario and I'm more like Luigi. He grabbed the fire flower and I stomped on a turtle and ran around holding it over my head waiting to throw it at somebody. But again, a weirdly creepy parallel to our lives. And that being the case, I wanted to see if even our war stories were equally similar. And you might be surprised. I would be remiss if I did not tell you my favorite story of a <laughs> firefight and challenge you to give me something similar. Okay. <laughs> okay. We were in uh, Alkut, just 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 shy of uh, Hila, and uh, I was actually attached to uh, an ODA. But around the corner from us was this mayor's office. Every morning, we had a, a small detachment come over from the Marine base. There was like a Marine JAG. Great guy named Sean, but he did not want to be a JAG. He reminded you that he was a Marine first. He mm-hmm. didn't want to be a JAG. He just was too smart, and they made him a, a lawyer. <laughs> well, we get a call one day that the mayor's office is being attacked, and they are like maybe a click and a half away. So everybody mounts up to go pull the mayor and his staff and the few marine assets that were in there out of this building and we're clearing everybody and we're like we're sean we're sean we're sean we look up at the top of this building and this marine jag is standing up there with a bandolier and a shotgun like he's goddamn rambo <laughs> and uh <laughs> the oda captain goes sean get the fuck down here what are you what are you doing like you're just a target up there and it was the craziest scene did you have any 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 I mean, just, memorable just gun think fights. about the shotgun. I mean, that even like a double op buck. I mean, you're maybe <laughs> getting about 75 meter at the most. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's funny because he definitely doesn't know his weapons capability. No, <laughs> no. Did you have any memorable gunfights that you can't talk about? Any <laughs> missions that you went on? You were like, it was a so shit show. I'll just let you know, like my first one. So Basilan Island, the... Abu Sayyaf um, bandits were coming in to Basilin. That's where we started trying to triangulate the Burnhams, which the Burnhams were uh, Christian missionaries that got kidnapped by uh, 
Abu Sayyaf, which is like Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. uh, in the Philippines. So we were patrolling through triple canopy jungle. I was point man, make enemy contact front, AK rounds started slinging and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of dark, really thick vegetation, uh, heard the command to peel. I started running like Forrest Gump, right? So <laughs> I, uh, I ran as fast as I can, you know, during the peel formation because I was up front and I didn't, I got tired of getting shot at. So I ran so fast, I ran into a tree <laughs> and, and this tree knocked me out and uh, I woke up to my teammates dragging me across the jungle. <laughs> oh, so yeah, it was really embarrassing and I didn't sleep for the next, I would say next three days because I was... Uh-huh. Headache? Doped up on adrenaline, right? So the first time that you've been into that type of situation, you're just, wow, you're just a mess. But you know what's what's interesting is like my last few firefights, it's crystal clear. They kill you or you kill them. And I hate to sound like that, but that's war, right? I don't think it can get any more simple than that. And there's a certain portion in the teachings of Bushido and Budo, the way of war, that you must fight like you already died. You know, and that's why people have a hard time coming back from the war because everything's just so simple in the battlefield. Life is way harder once you're done with the cut and dryness of what war is. Yeah, you know, and being a a senior NCO, I see that. You know, my teammates, the young ones, they come back, their life was totally just spinning out of control, barely making it. But yet, they're this lethal entity during the war. It's truly when you get back home is when things can get hard. James, there's a lot to worry about when you're planning a wedding. There are logistics that have to do with clothes, with flowers, with food, with all of those things. And one thing you don't want to have to worry about is your feminine care. And that's where Lola comes in. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They started their company with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. I love that it's been founded by women for women. They offer pads and liners as well as non-applicated tampons for those looking for a more environmentally friendly option. Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics or dyes and they make your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable so you can choose your mix of products, your perfect mix of absorbency, your number of boxes and frequency of delivery. And James, let me tell you, as a woman who menstruates and as a woman who uses Lola, Lola's totally changed my life. I'm not running off in the middle of the night to the corner store to get feminine care because this is coming straight to my door. And when Megan has Lola, she won't have to do that either. She's not going to have to leave Kensington to go off on the main street and try and find some tampons in the middle of the night. And because we love you, we've sorted 40% off your first order. Visit mylola.com and enter promo code MARRY when you subscribe. That's promo code MARRY at mylola.com for 40% off your first order. Before we get back to Battle Scars, I want to tell you about another podcast. If Then is a show about technology, society, and power. 
Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Ormus take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters. From fake news in your Facebook feeds, to the algorithms that want your job, to the Uber drivers who want a career with benefits. With news-making interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, they explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. And guess what? They don't always agree. Every episode features an in-depth interview with newsmakers like Antonio Garcia Martinez, Ellen Powell, Linda Kahn, and Tim Wu. Now, let's get back to Battle Scars. You and I are both children of the 80s. We literally came to this country in the 80s as boat people. My father escaped from a POW camp, took us to Thailand, and had to fight every moment from the moment he got out of prison to until we got on that boat in Thailand and then brought us to the United States. What was that like for you? Because I was only a baby. I was literally 13 months old when my family got here. You were a little bit older than me. Yeah, when that I was happened. too. It echoes with John F. Kennedy. He once said that we're one generation away from our freedom being taken away. Because you think about it, we fought for this generation, you and I, right? We, cool. we raised our right hand under God and we met our enemies on the battlefield, right? We, we left our home and we defended this country. So when you and I are old, who's going to defend the next generation? Mm-hmm. Freedom is a valuable thing. And the reason why I'm saying this is you and I both lost our freedom, right? Yeah. At birth, we lost our freedom. I was only two, so I don't remember a lot. But what I do remember is this. Growing up, my mother cried almost every night Mm -hmm. because her family was gunned down on the streets. My uncle was in the Navy. So after the fall of Saigon, he was imprisoned in what they called correction camps. Mm -hmm. By the time he came to the United States, the guy had no skin on the bottom of his foot. Mm. He was scared of the dark. He was scared to eat. He was sleeping in the corner of the room when there's a bed there. I tell you this, when I was younger, I didn't understand. When I was in junior high and high school, when I helped my mother, you know, raise back my, my uncle, you know, try to give back life to him because he was defeated. And who wouldn't be defeated, right? Because I, I could tell you this, I, I've been through some, we call it SEER school training, which is a prisoner uh, in evasion training. And I've been through five different levels of it. And I, and I tell you this, man, it's probably nothing compared to what he's been through. Mm-hmm. And I was too young to understand it at that time. My mother would give me dinner, right? And I would bring it to my uncle. And I would knock on the door. And sometimes he wouldn't answer the door, so I would open up the door. The bed is, is still made. You know, my uncle was laying in the corner with a flashlight passed out because he was suffering from PTSD and what the, the North enemies done to him at those prison camps. Mm-hmm. And you don't see it, right? You don't understand until you actually put your, your life on the line to defend this country. Mm-hmm. You don't see it. You don't see the sacrifices people make when you drive across, you know, driving down a highway and you see that, you know, the American flag waving, you know, you just don't catch the gravity of that until you actually serve your country or you come close to losing life, right? So I seen your video where you got shot in the neck and you came pretty close. So one of the lessons that I try to teach people is this, you don't really live until you almost died. 
Mm-hmm. You agree? You agree with this? This statement? Oh, absolutely. So tell me, like, after that incident happened, it was. I, I seen a video. It was pretty, um, pretty amazing. It came pretty close. Is what I'm saying. So how did that change your life? Well, from that moment on, I mean, I, I talk about that that day on stage. I just show the video as part of my stand-up act. It's it's part of my healing process that I'm able to take that moment where I came. <laughs> millimeters from having my head blown off and 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 turning it into comedy for me because that's what heals me but from that day on i mean you won't find a photo of me in iraq with a helmet on um because i lived like you said i lived like and fought like i was already dead like i i remember very clearly thinking several times if i'm gonna go it's gonna be in a hail of bullets and a blaze of glory there were times I said to a lieutenant one time, I was like, hey, if the sergeant major in the sky wanted to take me, it would have been on the day that I got shot in the head. So if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging and I'm going to take a bunch of people with me. And that's how I lived for that year. I, I was in Iraq. I was scared to death. I didn't know it until I came home, until I was done fighting, until I was back on civilian soil, going to college and being a regular person again. But from that moment on, I was Superman. Because I had to be, because I was mm-hmm. a 25 year old who was in charge of a bunch of 18 and 19 year old and 20 year olds. Yeah. So I had to be, be a leader. I've always said that we are lucky. I have friends who are first generation Americans who, who serve in the military. We are lucky in the fact that we are only one generation away from having our freedom taken away. Like you said, it's, I, I'm so close to that. And I think too many Americans are so many generations removed from that. So many generations from, from having somebody in the military, some having somebody's grandfather, uncle, or father who had fought in Vietnam or Korea or World War II. And I think that as service members, we're lucky to have experienced that, but even more so that we are first generation, brand new to this country, and even when we got here, I don't know about you, but I felt like I had to fight for my right to be an American. And right. joining the army was just, You know, yeah. even to this day, I feel that way. And, and I think it's just our culture, you know, when, when people talk about Muslims, you know, because they're our current enemy right now. And not Muslims, but the extremists, right? That's, right? And I do hear people say, you know, they're Muslims. Well, that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I left Vietnam and I, and I came over to the United States, I was raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is, it was a small town to the biggest military base, Fort Bragg, right? Special operations is there, the 82nd's there. So you think about like the 80s when people um, don't understand the gravity of, of what we went through. First, we just finished the Vietnam War, okay? And then you had a flux of refugees escaping Vietnam. And I, I think this is a, a story that needs to be told here. After the fall of Saigon, our family was gunned down on the streets like animals. And my grandfather took his whole life savings, which was these gold bars, and he smuggled us out of country on a wooden boat. So it was my brother, my mother, and, and myself. Everybody's trying to leave Vietnam. So first we had to, what, escape past the bandits. Because everybody who's escaping is what? They have some kind of money, right? Mm -hmm. By the grace of God, we somehow escaped past that. So Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, all these surrounding countries didn't want us. Mm -hmm. So when we went into the coastline 
of Indonesia, the Coast Guard actually shot at us. My mother told me hundreds of people perish. Oh my God. Hundreds, close to thousands. We were the only boats that made it. And then they pulled us out in the ocean, cut the line, shot our engine, and left us there to die. Mm -hmm. So basically we floated. And if you don't believe in God, well, hopefully the story is you will. Because somehow that storm pushed us into waters where it was a Russian supply boat. Mm -hmm. They picked us up. These were Russians. The same ideology that took us out of our native country. The same ideology put my uncles in prison, killed half my family. But yet they looked past that these were South Vietnamese refugees. And they picked us up and took us back into Indonesia where the monks came down and saved us. And my aunt married a special forces lieutenant, which at that time he expedited the paperwork to get us over to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, at, at which time my mother met my father, who was American Special Forces Sergeant. Yeah. So you see how I was indoctrinated into that world. So at eight years old, I was running in the backwoods of North Carolina, <laughs> navigating stars and building fires with a knife. And because that's what my father and I did, right? That's what mm -hmm. we did. He he was a special forces Green Beret. He taught me the skill set at a very young age, just just so we could spend time together. Right. But what he didn't know was he was molding me into a future Green Beret. That's awesome. But I knew that the Green Beret, the true special forces mission of training, advising, assistance by, with, and through, will put me into those conflicted areas and allow me to help or save the people that once was us, right? The refugees right. that once was us, because I have saved tribes. I have saved groups of people over in Africa or over in Zambawanga when the, the extreme Muslims would come down and kill the Christians. We have gone in there and saved them. We have affected lives. And as a Green Beret, that allowed me to, to follow in my life's work, which was to, to help the defenseless, which was us when we were floating on that boat, right? I went through training when I was 20, so I got to the teams at 21. And, you know, I was this young Green Beret that I thought the Special Forces mission was to kick down doors, right? So I'm like, when are we going to kick down some doors? And uh, I remember my team started, a very wise man. And he said, I have a better mission for you. I'm going to send you into Laos. I'm like, oh, yes, right? Because I'm thinking Vietnam era, you know. No. So what happened was... Um, it was a mission to go and do a demining mission mm -hmm. where I went into a village where these kids are amputees because they're playing in these rice fields that the U.S. government dropped these landmines, thousands of landmines all through Asia. So when I linked up with my, my Terp, I was talking to him coming off the helo and there was this little girl, she came running up to me. So I was prepared, you know, for this. So I, I, pulled out my pocket candy, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I, my other teammates told me, like, you know, make sure you bring candy for the kids. So I gave her candy, and then she, she pulled out my hand, and she shook her head, no. He said she wants a pen. So I gave her the pen. She pulled my, you know, pulled me down, kissed me on the cheek, and ran off, like, really happy. I, I thought it was really weird. And uh, the Terp said, didn't say anything to me. He, it, was, it was really weird. You know, he didn't say anything to me. He was just real quiet. And then at lunch, he goes, sir, do you know what you did this morning? What do you mean? He goes, you gave that girl the pencil. I say, if I, if I did something wrong, please tell me. He goes, no, sir. 
What you did was you gave that girl an education because they don't even have paper, pencils, or pens here. I thought about it. I hooked up an airdrop of school supplies to be dropping to the, the LZ. Those, my friend, are the defining moments, man. Right. Those are the things that is, it, it goes leaps and bounds over war. Something that my guests and I have mentioned several times on this show is the almost uniform dislike by many combat veterans of a film called The Hurt Locker. Now, without going into detail, it's terrible. If you really want to know, check the internet. But the one thing that movie got right, and every veteran will name the same scene, is the grocery store aisle. When Jeremy Renner's character is trying to pick a cereal in a seemingly endless and pointless array of choices, that mundane task is more stressful to many of us than combat. And I don't mean that facetiously. After a combat tour or a lifetime of war, the everyday decisions of a life at peace hold no value to us. Which is why readjusting to civilian life is so goddamn difficult for so many of us. We're out of sync with the quiet of the world around us, and we fear that our comrades are still in the fight without us. We don't have the rhythm of the military to march to, but it's still noisy and cluttered. Two mention that coming home is really the hardest part of a soldier's life. He struggles. I struggle. We all struggle. Some of us more than others. Some of us, not at all. As a signal NCO or a radio guy, I can tell you that it's like scanning for a radio station through the noise, trying to lock into a clean channel to listen to. I found my clean channel with the GIs of Comedy, a group I created made up of military veterans turned stand-up comedians who travel all around the world performing to our brothers and sisters in uniform. That is my mission now to bring the healing power of laughter to those who still serve. But it took me years to figure that out. And when you're trying to sort out your next mission, your next purpose, you're also left with a lot of time to think about those who didn't make it, who didn't come home. And that can be tough to deal with even while you're serving. Again, another oddly parallel storyline between two and I. And for him, it meant almost a decade of anger. I deployed 03, came home 04, and two weeks before I redeployed, um, like I lost my roommate to an IED. And it was still to this day the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with. Yeah. Which is why I've dedicated my life and my career after the army to, to healing people with, with mm -hmm. comedy. And I just got an email from a Marine who's stationed over in Iraq who just saw my, my team perform over there uh, a couple days ago. And he said it was the most healing thing for him to be over yeah. there, an austere location, austere environment, and just for 90 minutes being able to laugh yeah. and forget about where he was. And that gave him the clarity of mind, he said, to go back to work the next day and just, just kick ass. Um, yeah. And that was an amazing feeling. And that's why I created the group that I did. And that's why I do the things that I do with Battle Scars or the GIs of Comedy. Because you have to have that clarity of mind. Um, right. Because I used, to, I used to think 
you know, the distracted soldier was a dead soldier. Yeah. And I think at one point you, you, you were distracted. You lost a soldier and, and that, that took you to a bad place. I lost one of my best friends, a mentor, a teammate, and he was one of the uh, very few Vietnamese guys in the special forces. You know, you know, just the Asian population in special operations, we make up 0.001%. Mm -hmm. He was a mentor, a close friend, and I was there. When he passed, I took it a little bit personal. I would say for the next four to five years, I was on a, um, a headhunt. It wasn't good. You know, it was more fueled by hate and fire than reasoning, but that's war. Sometimes you lose your way and, you know, you go after them. So I, I did, you know, I volunteered for a lot of stuff and I fought the war as, as hard as I could. How long were you in that place in your life? I'd say eight years. Yeah, I fought with hate for eight. But, you know, where I, I found my serenity was in um, when I went to my final continent was uh, Africa. I was in the border of Buna Majida. We're fighting the, the Chad rebels. You know, there's a lot of crimes up there, you know, kidnappings. Kids would get kidnapped and, and they don't show up, you know, a week later with an IED strapped to them. And they'll show up in the middle of a town. So the crowd would run towards them and that's when the IED goes off. So these are things that happens in the conflict zones without the support. Those are the missions that became super dangerous in my eyes. And you volunteered for those. I did. I volunteered for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So I was fueled by fire. But the, the thing about this is that I realized at a certain point that it was a negative energy because the war started catching up to me. You just don't care about anything else but how you want to perform in, in times of conflict. So, you know, your, your marriage, your, your life, your home, your home life. I was going to college. I was putting myself through college by fighting a war. So, you, you know, everything gets disrupted because, you know, you're Asian. So you believe in the yin and the yang, you know, you believe mm -hmm. in, and there's a balance. And when you have too much of something, it's not a good thing. Was there a moment that shook you out of that place? Like I know for me, I had come home back from Iraq, medically got out of the army because my gun shot and then I didn't have a mission. And, and I, I found myself in this place where if I told the VA that I couldn't sleep, they gave me drugs. If I told them I had a headache, they gave me drugs. And <laughs> it's the weirdest thing that shook me out of it. But I, I'd gone on vacation with a girlfriend and I looked at a photo of me on a beach in Mexico with this girl I was dating. And I looked terrible. I'm 5'8". I weighed 200 pounds. I did nothing but drink and eat and try to get over everything that I'd gone through in Iraq. And I just looked at this photo of this person that was not me. I just remember thinking, who is that piece of shit soldier? That's the thing that shook me out of my place of depression and made me go back to the gym and made me start working out and yeah. made me find a natural way to get back to who I wanted to be and the standard that I had lived in for a decade. Did you have a moment like that? So after the war, after I came home from Africa, I think it was my last mission. I was in South Africa. I was protecting the president, former president, when he flew in for Mandela's funeral. And that's when my world was kind of coming apart. I started 
face of my dark times. And those were my dark years. And those that, that dark year expanded about three years for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it could have destroyed me. I lost a lot of friends along the way. I had a lot of negative energy from the fire years, you know, the years with hate. So it boiled up and um, took every energy to get out of bed in the morning. I'm a very active person. I've always been. But I didn't want to go outside. I wanted to lay in bed all day. I wanted to be in the dark. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I cocooned myself. And I think through the darkness, I made a phone call to my stepfather, who was former Special Forces, huge influence in my life. So I asked him. I said, I couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, my, my father said to me that it's okay. You serve your country. You serve your God. You know, you can retire. Oh, I was 21 years at that time. And he said, you can retire and live a life of peace. And I asked him, what am I going to do? He goes, anything you want. The thing about this was my life was spinning out of control. And I don't think my father was seeing the, the gravity of the situation. But he did say something when he closed out the phone call. He said, you can retire in peace or you can take your life experience and make a difference. And that stuck with me. And I asked him, I said, how? He goes, I don't know, son. Every person has their own journey, and you have to figure it out. Today, Two runs a security consulting firm called Ronin. The name is an homage to the legendary masterless samurai. His teachings and training of police departments and other clients is his way of giving back, preparing for war, and helping others to prepare while at peace. I've been out of the Army for over a decade. I got out as a staff sergeant, a mid-grade non-commissioned officer. And if I've learned anything in my time as a leader, it's that I can always still learn from other leaders. Two is a retired master sergeant, and he's still teaching. And I'm still learning. For years after I left the Army, I thought that being a soldier without a mission or a warrior without a master was the end of me. But he just taught me, in less than an hour, that it can also be the beginning. Battle Scars is a Panoply podcast, produced by Ryan Dilley, Shara Morris, and A.C. Valdez. Our theme music is composed by Daniel Dandy. The artwork by Jesse Brown. Special thanks to Andy Bowers, Panoply's chief content officer. I'm your host, Tom Tran. If you like the show, review us, or rate us, or just tell someone about us. And in honor of the Special Forces motto, De Oppresso Libir, which means to free the oppressed, let me leave you with a quote from another great leader. In the words of Optimus Prime, freedom is the right of all sentient beings. Also, Autobots, transform and roll out. Roll out.